scripture for today on this third Sunday of Advent is from a lesser-known prophet named Zephaniah. Say that after me, Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Did you even know that was a book in the Bible? Come on, let's be honest. (laughs) We're in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. It's important to know that we're in chapter 3 because this is the last chapter of this little book. And what's said in chapter 3 to wrap up the message of the prophet Zephaniah is quite the contrast to what's said at the beginning of the prophet's message. Chapter 3, you see, is all about joy. Say that with me, joy, joy. That's chapter 3 of Zephaniah. And many Old Testament prophets are known for their doom and gloom. But here in chapter 3 of Zephaniah, God reveals a world of unimaginable joy. This leads one commentator to write, Rejoice! Here comes a happy prophet. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to hear good news from a happy prophet. However, the happy prophet does not start happy. Listen to how Zephaniah starts his little book in chapter 1, verse 1 of Zephaniah. He begins, The Lord's word that came to Zephaniah, verse 2, I will wipe out everything from the earth, says the Lord. I will destroy humanities and the beasts. I will destroy the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. Come on now, Lord, what did the birds ever do to you? I will make the wicked into a heap of ruins. I will eliminate humanity from the earth, says the Lord, to the happy prophet. These were the Lord's words 600 years before Christ, and they're an instant reminder of the Genesis flood. In Genesis chapter 6, as you may recall, God says to Noah, the end has come for all creatures since they have filled the earth with violence. I am now about to destroy them along with the earth. So I've got a question. How in the world does this story have a happy ending? If all creatures are destroyed, who's left for the happy part? (laughs) And how does chapter 1 of Zephaniah, with its threat of total destruction, end on the high note of joy in chapter 3 of Zephaniah? These are the questions God wants us to bring to the text as we enter the drama of Scripture. Now, anybody ever watched a good thriller? Yeah? Or maybe read an adventure novel? If you've ever watched a a good thriller, the author, or or, or read a novel, the authors, what do they do? They often create such such a hopeless scenario for the good guys. And you're forced to wonder, Will this have a happy ending? How can this possibly end well? The little book by the prophet Zephaniah feels a little bit like this. Or have you ever known the final score of a game? And you know that your team has won, but then you watch it from the start. And as you're watching, victory seems impossible. So you think to yourself, how in the world are they going to pull this one off? Again, that's how reading Zephaniah feels if you start with the end and then read from the beginning. But let's step outside of the story of the Bible for a moment. 
And think about the story of our own world. Have you ever wondered whether it's, whether it's really possible for the story of the world to end well? In our world of disaster, have you ever wondered? Tornado in December, killing 70-plus people, have mercy, Lord. And think about your own story. For some of us, the story of our lives feel a, a little bit less like chapter 3 of Zephaniah and a little more like chapter 1 of Zephaniah with no hope for a happy ending. Tornadoes of anger wreck our relationships. Hurricanes of hatred divide our families. Blizzards of grief make us feel cold, isolated, and alone. For different reasons, a happy ending seems highly improbable for some of us. In Genesis 6, God talks to Noah, as I said, about how the end has come for all creatures. But we know on the other side of the story that this end was really a new beginning. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So God talks to Noah about how the end of all things has come for the creatures. And for some of us, the end has already come to those we love most. And the weight of grief is crushing us. We watch the news and we despair at the violence that continues to fill the earth. A violence that forces today's parents to figure out what to say when their teenagers text them from school scared. Mom, there's been another threat. I don't feel safe. I need you to pick me up right now. We naturally wonder, how could this possibly end well? How could there possibly be a happy ending for the world, for the nation, and for our own lives of quiet desperation? But most of the time, this question lives in the background of our lives. Tragedy is usually required to bring it forward, which is its own kind of tragedy. Because most of the time, this question is too, too daunting for us to ask, so we try our best to suppress it. But whenever we, we press pause on the things we use to distract us from our despair, the question is right there to haunt us. No wonder we stay so busy and distracted. It's this, this deep-seated question birthed in our anguish, a question on whether happy endings belong only in fairy tales and not in reality. This is the question we avoid as we numb out on Netflix, as we overwork and overeat, as we become helplessly preoccupied with ourselves and our image. Dear God, will I ever be happy again? Can the story of my life really end with a happily ever after? Or has my story already been written in the books as a tragedy? The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zephaniah 600 years before Christ. And it came to answer this very question. It's the question of Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, how long will you hide your face from me? It's the question of Psalm 44. Wake up! Why are you sleeping, Lord? Don't reject us forever. It's the lament of Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered how it used to be. 
the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah to answer these despair-drenched questions. And the answer comes in two parts. The first part was the unbearable word of a destruction based in divine judgment. The second part was the astonishing word of joy. This morning, I'd prefer to rush to the second part because Lord knows we need daily reminders of the joy God has promised us just to keep our heads above water. Quite naturally, I'd like to spend, to to speed up to the, the happy part, but God slows me down with the tears of the suffering. So I believe we must start with the first part, or else we're in danger of living in denial. And denial, especially the cheerful kind, is even more hopeless than depression, because cheerful denial refuses to see life as it really is becomes indifferent to the suffering of others, and therefore is never able to receive the real thing, life abundant. So we start with a summary of the first word. Then we'll read in full the second word on joy. This is God's word to Zephaniah. The first words that come to Zephaniah, the first set of images that God gives to the prophet, convey complete and utter destruction. The reason for the destruction is the fierce judgment of God. There's no way around this bitter fact. As C. Campbell Morgan phrased it a hundred years ago, God's first word to the generation of Zephaniah concerned God's sweeping hurricane of judgment. What's so surprising about this hurricane of judgment is the location of destruction. In 600 BC, the hurricane first makes landfall in Judah. And if you don't know, Judah was the very land God had promised to his people. The very land, God, the very land of the people God called his own. That's the first destination of destruction. It's a complete surprise to everyone who called Judah home because they thought they were safe. They thought God would keep them safe. They claimed God's promise of protection. We have Abraham as our father. Abraham, Abraham. But their lives did not reflect the God they claimed to worship. So their destruction was inevitable. As I explained a couple weeks ago when preaching on God's word to Jeremiah, The chief sin of God's people in those days, do you remember? It was, anybody remember? Forgetfulness. You forgot. (laughs) They they forgot God. They, They treated God as a historical artifact. They believed God existed, sure, but they were indifferent to his commands and unfamiliar with his holy presence. So here's what they did. They, they went on living lives of luxury at the expense of the poor. They went on worshiping money and bought into the empty promises it offers. They carried on comfortably, indifferent to the cries from the ground, the cries of the poor. They were cheerfully in denial. 
So God says in Zephaniah verse 17, their silver and their gold won't be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's fury. In other words, money's not going to buy your way out of this one. Verse 17, God's jealousy will devour the entire land with fire. He will make an end, a truly horrible one, for all the inhabitants of the land. These are the people of God he's talking about. Judah's experience 600 years before Christ reminds us, even today, that just because we're a part of the church doesn't mean we're safe. Not all Israel was the true Israel, as the Apostle Paul reflects. And not everyone in the church is truly the church. God's first word to Zephaniah reminds, serves as a perpetual reminder that God sees injustice everywhere, including in the church, and God refuses to sit on his hands and do nothing about it. Yes, there's coming a day called the day of the Lord, and it's a day that even now inserts itself in history whenever God has had enough of the abuse, the corruption, and the arrogance of humanity. That's the first word. It's God's warning to God's people about the judgment that will sweep through their city if they fail to repent. If they fail to listen to God's prophet, who says in chapter 2, verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, Seek the Lord, he says, all you humble of the land who practice his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Maybe you will be hidden on the day of the Lord's anger. He is saying this to those who thought they were safe because of their supposed faith in God. That's the first word. It's making me sound like a fire and brimstone preacher, isn't it? (laughs) If you've been around here for any length of time, you know that's uncharacteristic of me. But I have to preach the text. And that's the first word God gives to Zephaniah. But the second word, the second word the Lord gives to the prophet Zephaniah, the second word is a word of joy. (laughs) How can this be? (laughs) The second word is a word of joy. Joy for God's people. Listen for yourself to the prophet Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Rejoice, daughter Zion. Shout, Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your judgment. He has turned away your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is in your midst. You will no longer fear evil. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, don't fear, Zion. Don't let your hands fall. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior bringing victory. He will create calm with his love. He will rejoice over you with his singing. God says, I will remove from you those worried about the appointed feasts. They have been a burden for her, a reproach. Watch what I am about to do to all your oppressors at that time. I will deliver the lame. I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and fame throughout the earth. 
At that time, I will bring all of you back at the time when I gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the neighboring peoples when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The first thing to notice in the second part of the book of, Isaiah, the book of Zephaniah is the word daughter. It's the word daughter. How many of you have daughters? Show of hands. All right. I have two. God begins the second part of his message by addressing his people as daughters. Just as the tone and tenor of God's voice changes from anger to empathy, the first thing out of God's mouth are the words, Rejoice, daughter Zion. Why does God start by calling his people daughter? Well, in ancient days, daughters were even more dependent on the favor of their fathers. To be, a, to be a daughter was to be vulnerable. When God says, rejoice, daughter Zion, he is raising up his vulnerable people, people who now realize just how dependent on the father they are for everything. There's also something else about daughters in the ancient days. Back then, if one had a father who was cruel and desperate, the daughter was in trouble. The opportunistic father might even sell his own daughter to the highest bidder. Sadly, this happens even today in impoverished places around the world. LA Times tells a story of a girl named Luca who lives in South Sudan. To be a daughter in South Sudan is to be especially vulnerable, dependent on the decisions of the men in authority. Luca's position as a daughter was particularly precarious because her father had died when she was just 10 years old. This meant her uncle was the man in authority. And it was her uncle who told Luca when she was 16 years old that they were going to take a trip to the family village. Luca thought she was going to visit her family's grave, but that was a lie. Instead, she was married off against her will to an elderly man she had never met. Instead of becoming the young, educated woman she desired, she became the newest attraction among the man's six wives. In exchange for her life, her uncle received ten cows. This is precisely the kind of injustice and oppression that stirs up the anger of God. And on the last day, God will make it right. Returning to our text. To be a daughter is to be vulnerable, dependent on the favor of the father. If the father has a tender heart, the daughter is well taken care of. She has nothing to fear. If the father has a cold heart, the daughter is in danger. With this in mind, we can now see the, the power of our passage. As the heart of the Heavenly Father moves from passion to compassion for his creatures, passion against injustice to compassion for all he has made in his image. He says, Rejoice, daughter Zion! In this opening address, the Lord is revealing himself as the father with a tender heart. 
The Lord is revealing himself as the father who suffers much as he longs for his prodigal son to return home. The father who sent the son to be the savior of the world. Rejoice, daughter Zion. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Rejoice, all who recognize just how helpless you are, for you have found favor in your father's eyes. Rejoice, all who have trembled and humbled yourself under the warnings of God. Your father says there's nothing more to fear. Rejoice, all who have turned from selfishness to service. Your father's anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Rejoice, all who weep through the night, for the joy of the Lord is coming in the morning. O daughter heartland, rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Rejoice all who are broken. Rejoice all who are outcasts. Rejoice all who are ashamed. Rejoice even in the face of great tragedy and evil. Not with a kind of cheerful denial, indifferent to the suffering of others, but rejoice in the face of evil with a hope-filled heart that trusts in the living God, the God who breathes life into dead bones, as Pastor Stephanie told us last week. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross scorning its shame, mocking its misery, and he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and this is the throne from which Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. An event Acts 3 verse 21 calls the restoration of all things. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for the restoration of all things. I'm ready for the new heaven and the new earth. I'm ready for Christ to make all things new. I'm ready for God to make his home among mortals, purging and purifying and cleansing the world of all that causes us pain and tears. My friends, it is from the throne that Christ is coming again, and he will judge as a lion fiercely opposed to oppression, and he will judge as a lamb who was slain for the sin of the world. So rejoice, daughters and sons of God. Do you need any more reasons to rejoice? Here's more. Rejoice because your Father has turned your shame into praise, as our text says. Any of you have shame, sense of worthlessness, sense that you don't measure up, that something about you is just a little bit different? Rejoice, because your Father has turned your shame into praise and fame and honor. Rejoice, because your Father has removed your judgment and turned away your enemy. Rejoice because your Father, through the Son, has defeated even the last enemy of death. For when the grave opened, the devil's mouth was shut. So I say it again, rejoice. 
As the prophet Zechariah reveals in chapter 3, the Lord, where is he? What's the text say? It says, the Lord is in your midst. He's not outside. He's not floating around in the sky. The Lord is in your midst. A warrior bringing victory. And he will create calm with his love. <laughs> I love the, the juxtaposition, the, the, the two images, the warrior and the one creating calm with his love. This is the lion and the lamb. This is our Lord. He's a warrior bringing victory for you, and he will create calm with his love. He will, he, he will take his place in the choir, and he will rejoice over you with singing, the text says. And if that's not reason to rejoice, I don't know what is. My friends, in this world, we will have troubles. Nevertheless, joy to the world, then we sing. Let the earth receive her king. Joy to the world, then we sing. Let the angel voices ring. For in this world, we do have lots of troubles. But we take heart and we rejoice because Christ has overcome the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The eternal word of God, the Son who was in the beginning, came to us 